Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Erica Hall. Erica has been a design consultant since the late 20th century. She's the co-founder of Mule Design Studio and specializes in helping clients ask the hard questions and work better together to find the answer. She speaks and writes about topics that challenge the conventional wisdom of the field to encourage designers to think more deeply about the implications of their work. She's the author of Just Enough Research and Conventional Design. She can be found far too often on Twitter as at Mule Girl and co-host the podcast Voice of Design. And I'm going to mention and throw in that you are a lover of dogs and bicycles, <laughs> perhaps even at the same time. So let me welcome Erica to the deep dive. How are you? Hi, uh, I'm doing very well. I'm uh, very happy to be talking with you today. Thank you. You know, I'm, I'm really excited to go into more detail about your book, Just Enough Research. You know, when I came across the book and, and your work, I was really inspired to reach out because I love this idea of, you know, tackling ideas that are admittedly very complex and, and have a lot of nuance and introducing them to audiences in a way that they can become very applicable and, and usable. And the book really, really does that. So I want to really start there. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what was the inspiration or the incentive or the thought process behind putting together just enough research? So yeah, the origin story. We'll, we'll do the origin story. So at the very beginning of my career in design consulting, I was, I was working at an agency and the first person I met at the, the agency, because they were hiring very quickly, because it was boom times for internet business things, he was a, an ethnographer who'd recently escaped academia and was going into design. And we were seated next to each other. And so we became friends because they were trying to figure out what projects to put us on. And then we worked on a few projects together. And he had such a fantastic way of introducing research into the process. Even though he had this academically rigorous background, he very much acted like a coach and a mentor and everything was really collaborative and very grounded in research. And then when I co-founded my own agency, because I just love consulting work, I think some people are just consultants at the core. And I'm one of those people. I love going in and helping solve complex problems with this outside perspective and then you know, going on to the next problem. And what I found was that this way of working that began in inquiry and clarifying the problem and really vetting all of the assumptions and doing that collaboratively, not with an expert going off and writing a report and then just coming back to the rest of the team. I learned that this way that seemed to me the correct way of doing things, as well as the most enjoyable way and the most effective way, 
was not the way a lot of not only clients, but a lot of designers thought about the process. There was this impatience of, can we just get to the designing? I had this conversation so many times and I got really good at making the case, but I kept saying the same things over and over. And when I tried to get other people to be excited and enthusiastic about the prospect of doing that sort of discovery research, any kind of research to ground the design, all I had to hand them were enormous, like 600 page textbooks written by PhDs for aspiring PhDs. And I thought, I guess, you know, I forget who said it, but, you know, write the book that you need, that you want to exist. And I said, okay, I guess I need to write this book. And that's kind of how it started. And the title came to me first because I never liked the term guerrilla research because to me that always sounded like to be efficient with your resources was somehow less than. And if you threw all of the tools and all of the techniques and had special laboratories and rooms for it, that somehow more time-consuming and expensive research was better and you were cutting corners if you took a more lightweight approach. And I objected to that. And so I thought of the title, well, you want to do just enough research at any given time. And that kind of went from there. I think that's a great way of framing like how you came to this moment. And, you know, as you were talking, I jotted down this idea of impatience because Time is it's something that's been really swimming around in a, in a lot of my conversations, understanding not just the reality of time such as there is, but the constraints around time, the pressure that people often feel, which is usually related to time in, in some kind of way. And you mentioned there was a general impatience, right? People wanted mm-hmm. to get on to the design portion. And I'm curious in your mind why there seems to be so much impatience around the work that we do, particularly when it's iterative work, when mm-hmm. it's the type of work that really requires us to be patient, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word. Like, where do you think that comes from? I think it comes from a couple of places. One of them is it seems because of internet tools and technologies, it seems like everything is moving faster because we can communicate so quickly. We can access information so quickly. And so I think there's this pressure to solve complex problems or take on complex endeavors really, really fast because you can, I'd say maybe create the appearance Like you can generate visible work very quickly in our current tool sets, especially now, even more so than at the beginning of my career with there's so many interface design platforms and presentation and collaboration tools that you can make visible things really quickly. And you can make things that look like fully thought out, polished products really quickly or even whole systems without having the thinking underneath it. And I think there's this general anxiety as more and more of our material culture has been digitized. Objects have been literally disappearing from our world. I think I've seen pictures floating around that are composites of here are 
all of the things that used to exist in the world that the iPhone replaces. And so, so many of the, the artifacts, like the material culture of work has disappeared, right? You can do it like I've got a laptop and an iPhone and you can run a business with a smartphone and a laptop and an internet connection from basically anywhere with a strong internet connection. And so I think everything's disappeared. This creates like, how do we demonstrate that we're doing work? We have to be like showing things to each other, showing documentation of the work to each other. But the real truth is that the work is the thinking and the asking questions and the being in conversation with other people. That's the design work. But that makes people really itchy because we all are the products of our early education and our early careers where we have this anxiety of demonstrating our competence and demonstrating our value. And if people are just sitting around in a room talking or calling people on the phone or you know visiting people to learn about them, that doesn't look like material progress in, in the way that I think a lot of people are hungry for. Because everybody has this like insecurity about demonstrating their value that I think is different from imposter syndrome. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting. And, you know, I hadn't expected this line, but it's come up and I I think it's an interesting line, right? Because we're really diving into, and this is something that I have thought about and talked about a lot, which is the, the tangible versus the intangible, right? And so there's this materiality that you just described of, of what we thought of as work, mm-hmm. right? The creation of papers and reports mm-hmm. and things that has now become sort of immaterial, mm-hmm. right? Even at the same time that a lot of our work is done in our heads, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's that's had real implications in the moment that we are living in today, right? Where there is extended work from home, you know, things have clearly shifted due to the pandemic and we have more time Mm -hmm. supposedly, but yet people feel as if they're doing more than they've ever done. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do we square those realities? Right. As, as we kind of look, look forward, you know, has, has that something that you've, that has come up in your work as, as clients are thinking about these, these better questions? Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. And I think often the, the greatest benefit that we provide coming in with this perspective from the outside isn't that we're even necessarily martyr or have more expertise in particular areas. What we have is the ability to to kind of see where communication is breaking down and enforce a more humane process. Like when you think about human-centered design or humane design or however you want to to put it, socially conscious design, a lot of times the focus from business and from designers is on the end product. And I'm really interested in the process. I'm interested in making work more humane. And I know this is a huge conversation now because as you said, the, the pandemic has kind of forced the issue because work is happening in people's laps kind of at home all the time. And so we can come in and say, you know, you can be as an organization very effective and you can move very quickly, as quickly as you need, because speed, as we've been discussing, speed is, it's a stand-in for all of these, these other anxieties. 
but you can do that in a really, you know, pleasant and collaborative way. And I think there's this, I think startup culture has really driven this, this idea that if you're not grinding 16 hours a day, you're not being effective. But all you are is, you know, generating meaningless output if you're doing that. And I think a lot of the glorification of the grind has to do with just how trivial some of the problems they're solving are. So I think if it's like, oh, our whole staff is killing themselves, then the work must be important rather than, hey, we're working on an app that helps people order food or something like that. Why don't we do that between 10 and five? Because really we can. And then everybody can have a life outside work. Yeah. Uh, it's totally possible. And so we can come in from the outside and say, hey, here are the conditions under which we'll work together. And it means our conversations have to have a focus. It means we have to be really clear on why we're doing things and what the goals are and how we know we're successful before we do anything that to you looks like a solution, a design solution or an artifact or anything. And so we can kind of enforce that coming in from the outside. Absolutely. You know, this idea of where we choose to spend our our labor is a, is a really interesting challenge. And it's, you know, I recently published an essay kind of dealing with with some of that, trying to unpack some of that, this idea that so much of what we call innovation, you know, that's the the word du jour. I'm like, this is not innovative at all, right? Like this is just sort of linking ourselves mm-hmm. to these kind of old industrial age ideas and, and now taking them to another extension. But it's not really an, an innovation. Like Uber is not an innovation, you know? <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's just another extension. You know, whenever I can kind of needle Uber, I try to take an opportunity to do that, even though I, I do use it. So I, I have hypocrisy in my life as well. Um, we live in a society. We live yeah. in a society and we, we have to in- get places in the cities we live in sometimes. And that, and sometimes that's the the rational option for an individual. Yeah, absolutely. New York does have really good public transportation, though it's been not as good as it used to be mm-hmm. in past years. We're still kind of dealing with some with some issues in yeah. New York City public transportation. But one of the things I wanted to do, do want to get into process and I do mm-hmm. want to touch on those things. But before I did that, I wanted to get to some of the philosophical things that are that are in the book. And I don't know if you meant them to be philosophical, mm-hmm. but I took them as philosophical. And so I had like a, a few mm-hmm. ideas kind of buzzing around. And one of them is like, you know, you really presented this really strong argument and premise for the, really the value of research that as someone who does research, I found like really, really just refreshing, right? Because to a certain extent, and I want to get your thoughts on this, the notion of, of research has become so watered down relative to the process that you've outlined in this book, right? Small book, but powerful ideas. And what I landed on was, you know, again, we're in this pandemic, but there's all kind of misinformation and disinformation Mm -hmm. that COVID has just exacerbated. We've seen this in politics. We've seen this in social. We've seen this in many different spaces. And one of the things that you will hear these idiots say is that I've done my own research, right? Like that's the first thing they'll Mm -hmm. say when they're presenting whatever toxic or 
idiotic idea that they're mm-hmm. presenting into the world, right? The libertarians and the conservatives, mm-hmm. right? That say stupid things. I've done my research, right? Mm-hmm. So as a researcher, how do you like reclaim research mm-hmm. out of the clutches of these idiots? <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a great question. And yeah, I I watch what's going on with that with great interest and and sometimes despair all the time. There are a couple of ways. One is to say that the first step is critical thinking. Like if you do nothing else, because I think when people talk about research, they they focus on reports and they focus on, again, these, these sort of like outputs and things like that. And, and so step one, like you can't do anything unless you think critically. And you have to be really clear on what your goal is in doing the research. And something I talk about all the time, especially in the workshops I do, is the discomfort in asking questions. And the fact that asking questions has always been anti-authoritarian, right? Galileo didn't get put under house arrest for being wrong. Socrates had to eat the hemlock because he was asking too many questions. You know, when you look at people in history, like these sort of semi probably mythological figures who challenged the myth that supported authority with, hey, you know, this, this thing's actually true. That's why we have the fairy tale of the emperor's new clothes. And so I think the first thing I tell people who are interested in promoting research, researchers themselves, is you have to understand that the issue is not a lack of information. The issue is how human beings work. And a lot of our reasoning is more designed for survival, which means it's about relationships and power, which are more important to survival than facts. And if you come in and you say, well, why aren't people just really interested in facts? It's that a lot of people really want to feel like they're living in a a safer reality than reality is actually is. It's a response to a threat. And what they're looking for is they're looking to be proven right. And so they'll find the thing, they'll pattern match to what feels right to them. It's it's everything that you know Daniel Kahneman wrote about in thinking fast and slow, the way that we want to fit facts into the story we already have. And it's a it's a hard discipline to say, okay, I'm going to think critically, I'm going to be very honest about my goal. And my goal is to seek the truth. My goal is not to be proven right. And so you have to understand that people feel unsafe. They feel that they're kind of the group that they belong to is under threat. And so the most important thing is to reinforce their existing beliefs. And that's the goal, even if it's not the stated goal. And I think that's the way to understand the response to all the misinformation around there. It's to to strengthen the group identity and even at the expense of one's own life, which I think is the thing that really is head exploding, right? When you see people who we're seeing them in the news, the people who spread misinformation, who then just like go and die, all of these right wing radio hosts are dying. And it's really hard to understand when you're somebody who is a truth seeker and a critical thinker and sort of prides yourself on being a part of that group, it is really hard to look at people who use reasoning in a different way. And, you know, I don't want to fall victim to nostalgia in in the sense that, you know, because I think people 
do fall into that trap mm-hmm. where they'll say like, oh, back in my day, we did this. And mm-hmm. I remember that. But I want to, because you mentioned critical thinking. And mm-hmm. I think in my estimation, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm giving my own editorial here. Yeah. Right? Disagree and all the all that good stuff. I, I feel like there's been a, a sustained effort over the past 70, 60 to 70 years to limit our ability to think critically. And I land on that because of the lack of investment in education, mm-hmm. particularly public school education, the rise of charter schools. And all of that is designed, in my mind, to like get rid of teacher unions, mm-hmm. like get us away from like Black kids and white kids going to school together, right? Because mm-hmm. that's when charter schools kind of came up in, in the South and, and places like that. So again, this might be a little off topic of the book, but the critical thinking piece is what I want to get to because I just feel like we're losing that ability to think Uh critically because our basis of education is less than it used to be for a variety of reasons that are Uh socially constructed. Uh So I'm curious if you have seen or felt any of that in, Uh in your estimation as it comes to critical thinking. Hmm. Uh, it, yeah, it is tricky to think like, was I, I can very much remember when I had teachers in school who introduced the idea of critical thinking. I feel very lucky. I don't know if that was the norm. I think that there have always been forces that are aligned with authority that are like down with critical thinking. Like I was just listening to a podcast about movies that was discussing the area of like McCarthyism and the blacklist and rooting out communism in Hollywood, which seems kind of bananas. I think a thing that has happened, I have a different historical explanation because I think people in power are always uncomfortable with critical thinking because it locates truth outside of power. I think we had a period during the Cold War when we felt that our big enemy was a technological enemy. Why did we go to the moon? Why did America go to the moon? Because we had to beat the Russians there. And that had all sorts of knock-on effects, right? Science education was a really important sort of competitive on the global, like on the world stage. That was, it was really important. How do we defeat the enemy? We're better at science. Well, the enemy changed. Now, when you think like, how do sort of the hawkish people in America, the xenophobes view the enemy, it's a religious enemy, right? It's not our technology. We're not, it's not a space race. It's like a the so-called Judeo-Christian versus the so-called Muslim world, right? That's been the big sort of background to our kind of the war machine stuff that happens in America. And I think that's contributed to like a shift in cultural priorities that that trickles down to education and curriculum. That's why, well, people would put up with science and critical thinking because it's like, well, they're going to have some scientific method ideas that are going to be really challenging to the status quo. But we have to permit science to, to go forward to fight our big enemy. And I feel like I feel like there are a lot of other reasons, but that's a big one that I, that I think about where it's like, we don't need science. We don't need to promote science culturally in the way that was really important when we were fighting Russia, when we were fighting the communists. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a really interesting way to look at it. And I, I would add 
one other piece to that, because I was thinking about your hypothesis and I do like it, is also our financialization of our lives, right? Like our big weapon is is now like mm-hmm. global finance and, and mm-hmm. money, right? Something that, again, doesn't require the same level of, mm-hmm. of intellectual prowess in order to master. Um, so maybe there's, a, like anything else, right? We're yeah. asking better questions, mm-hmm. right? And hopefully coming up with better answers. And I want to get to the power of asking better questions, mm-hmm. right? Before I do that, though, I'm going to I'm gonna do one other part because this was another philosophy piece that you mentioned I thought was really interesting. These two ideas that you highlighted, one is to be a skeptic. That mm-hmm. happens very early in the book. And then also this idea of the curse of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to kind of frame those two concepts. And then we're going to get into the power of asking better questions. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's really important to be a skeptic because it's so easy, again, because we have these human brains and we like habits and asking questions is really uncomfortable because we might learn something that really shakes up our whole worldview and that's bad. And I think even for professional researchers, it's very easy to just fall into what is comfortable. And that might be framing your questions based on the funding source. That might be using a particular method just because it's easy for you, even though it's not the right one. Sometimes that even means tweaking the data because there are incentives. And so we always have to have to keep in mind to ask the questions of yourself and ask, like, is this the right question? Is this the right method? What reasons am I, am I doing this for? Are the priorities or the goals I'm being handed, are those true? Or is there something behind that? And I'm being told a story. So maintaining that skeptical mindset is a discipline. And it is hard because it takes a lot of effort to always say, it's super annoying. Like you're an annoying person if you're constantly saying, well, why are you doing it that way? Even if you, you really mean it, it always sounds challenging. Like questioning is challenging. It just is. You're challenging reality whenever you ask a question, but that's necessary. That's the most important thing to say, why, why are we doing this? Why are we asking it like this? Is there a better way? And it's really fast. Going back to our, the earlier part of our conversation about speed, the issue is not speed. Going through this process can sometimes you get a few people in a room very, very quick, painful, effortful, but it's not a matter of speed. It's a matter of like staying, your brain wants habits, right? And so that's the skepticism part that's so core. And then the curse of knowledge is a cognitive bias that means if you have domain knowledge, if you know about anything at all, it is nearly impossible, especially if you have a lot of expertise or a lot of experience, it is impossible to empathize with the beginner's mind with somebody who's totally new to the field. And so if you're trying to explain something and you're an expert, you're going to have a really, really hard time explaining that in a way that makes sense to somebody who doesn't even have the the basic concepts of the field or the basic background knowledge that you kind of think is like, oh, everybody knows this. It's so easy to fall into that trap. That's a that's a very, very astute observation. Um, so asking better questions, right? The power of asking better questions. And this seems 
like it should be very easy, right? But yet it is it is very challenging. And I want to give you an opportunity to like, you know, really get us into the logic behind and the need to ask better questions and how does one discern mm-hmm. that we're actually getting better, right? Because mm-hmm. that implies that there's some magnitude from one state to another, mm-hmm. right? So I want to really start to go into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's really so much of the conversation in the the field with the, the practitioners and people who are trying to advocate for research and the argument has to do with tools and techniques and all of these things I kind of consider details because the whole point of research is to answer a question and any other choices you make follow from that question. And the thing that's striking to me is that this is something we know how to do in our daily lives when we're in a not politically charged state or not in the workplace where we are concerned about proving our competence. If you're just, for example, planning a vacation, which is the one of the most fun sort of complicated activities that people can do in life, planning a vacation is, is fun. If you say, okay, I have $2,000 to spend on my vacation this amount of time, people will research the heck out of that. They will be really clear on what they need to know. Okay, where am I going to have the best time? What kind of time do I want to have? Who, who can I talk to? What do things cost? How do I make sure I'm getting value for my money? What do I need to take? What have other people's experiences been? I'm going to look back at my results from historical vacation making choices to think, oh, I signed up for that group hike and that was terrible. So I'm not doing that again. And, and then people will know like, oh, I have enough information to book my trip or I have enough information where I I know to ask this friend or whatever. So people can make decisions based on on research when they're buying a new bicycle or buying a car. People do all the research activities. They do, and they know, oh, I need quantitative information. Like I need to know roughly what the average prices are versus like, oh, I need qualitative information. I need to know what people's experiences are like. I need to know what to expect. And all of that, people do without thinking but you put somebody in a business context, they freak out and they say, okay, we just have to run a survey. Like, I don't care what our question is. I don't care what the output is. It has to fit in a spreadsheet, even though the information won't be as useful for making a decision. And so that was there another, I think there was another part to your question yeah. that I forgot. Yeah, yeah. no, no, that the, the asking the better question, yeah. the better questions, mm-hmm. right? So if you can take that analogy of the planning of the vacation, right? Which as you said, very astutely, Everyone loves to plan a vacation, right? Like it's sort of, it's mm-hmm. a, just even the thought process of starting to think about a vacation elicits a particular mm-hmm. emotion, right? Yeah. And you start, you get, even hearing you go through it, I was like, damn, I want to yeah. start planning. Especially now, especially in yeah. this moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, damn, I would really love to start mm-hmm. planning a vacation. Yeah. Now that you think about it, yeah. right? So what happens in our brains when we go from the logic and the emotion of planning the vacation in your example mm-hmm. to working on a new product design that requires research. Like, mm-hmm. why does that switch mm-hmm. go off? Because it's it's like performance anxiety. Because when you're planning a vacation, you get to set the success criteria and you don't have to justify your choices to other people. And I think we have this work culture where 
certain types of data are more welcomed just by business culture, not because they're more useful or more effective. And there's a whole, there's a management culture. There's the fact that organizations themselves have to perform for their investors, for their shareholders, for their competitors. There's this whole performative layer that leads people to kind of play to the room rather than do what's actually effective. Like maybe if you think, well, we need to learn about our customers to make a product decision. So we're going we're gonna to talk to some people about their lives. That sounds too simple because you have this whole story that you have to fit that into. Or maybe if you talk to your customers in a free range, unstructured way, you're going to learn things that you don't want to learn that's going to have implications. And so I think the politics of work are such that there are more incentives for performing research than there are for really learning. In many cases, unless the whole organization kind of reorients itself, you know, because we we talk about, you know, like you were just talking about the financialization of everything. Finance is gambling, right? Finance is, can I convince other people that some abstraction of a real world phenomenon has a number that we can assign to it, right? That is all storytelling. It might be based on a number, but it's a number that is justified with a story. And so I think there's all of this kind of bad faith reasoning going on. But you take the same people, you know, if, if if you took anybody and said, okay, you're gonna go on vacation like next week, but you can't do any research about it, you're just gonna go. I think the... Because that is, that's madness. Like, why would, that's my, that's my life we're talking about. Like I could end up in a a terrible hotel on a bad trip, wasting all my money. I could be in a really bad position. I could be someplace I don't feel safe. You know, you understand the risks really viscerally, but yet those same people who would never go on a weekend trip without a ton of research will say, well, we're just going to invest a million dollars and see how it plays out, you know? It's wild. That's a <laughs> It's yeah, it's gambling. It's really, it's really really gambling. Yeah. You know, and you know, finance is alchemy, right? Like it's just a lot of just fancy terms and words and mm-hmm. you know, stir the pot and hope it works out. And it's funny cuz I was I was driving earlier and I was kind of thinking about our conversation and I was saying to myself that you know, prior to the work I do now, my experience with research was as a student, you know, academic research, I have to write a paper and, you know, do, you know, turn something into a professor in, in college and then in business school. Then my my first career working on Wall Street, it was as a, as a trader reading financial research, right? So if I traded the um, soft drinks, the analysts for Coke and Pepsi and Coca-Cola bottling would publish research, right? And when I, yeah, in quotes, and now when I, when I think about my life now, and now I think about your book, which is why when I was driving, mm-hmm. I was thinking about it. I was like, that couldn't be any further from what you describe and the type of work that you do. And and I think you you highlighted this to a certain extent, not with the same analogy, but when you talk about the difference between information and research. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a, a clear 
distinction between those two realities, you know? Mm-hmm. So how do you make that distinction clear? Because the amount of just garbage that's, mm-hmm. that's perpetrated on out there that passes itself off as research is just mm-hmm. astounding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, especially with some of the the so-called research firms. Yeah, I think it also it all goes back to the goal. It was like, what is your goal? Is your goal of justifying something you already want to do or justifying a choice you want somebody else to make? Or is your goal learning? That's why I like like I use the word research because that is the way people talk about it, but I personally like to think of it as evidence-based decision-making because I don't care if anybody writes a report because the report is not the outcome. But a lot of people say, oh, the outcome of research is the report. The goal is that everybody working together to make a set of decisions or a set of choices, whether it's to all go on a, a group vacation somewhere or you know to found a company, the goal is having knowledge about the real world. And so the question to always ask when you're in this situation saying like, is this research or is is this actually like information or or knowledge is to say, to what extent does this reflect reality or is it a story that has been constructed that has an agenda behind it? So you always say like, what's, what's the agenda behind this? Because it's really easy to take a lot of, and, and we're seeing with the misinformation we've been talking about, it's really easy to cherry pick things and, and come up with a report that, uh, that makes uh, the company that the investment side of your house, you know, <laughs> wants to, to get people to buy. And, uh, and it always goes back to that. It always goes back to how do I know that I'm learning about the real world? apart from anybody else's agenda. And it's, it is it is really iterative. It's, it's science in the sense that you always want to be proven wrong. And finding out that you're wrong is also success. And I think that's really uncomfortable for people. Yeah. I was thinking to a certain extent that, you know, when you're looking at this process as a way of challenging, it becomes harder, right? Because some people just want the research to support what they're going to do. So it's like, you know, we're making a widget. Mm-hmm. So go out there and bring me research to show me the best way to present the widget, mm-hmm. right? Or, or to who am I selling it to mm-hmm. or what, whatever, any number of questions, as opposed to research about a, a widget that might come back to say like, mm, widgets are not a good idea, yeah. right? When mm-hmm. you've already kind of invested, like the dude with Quibi, right? Like no one did research as to whether or not Quibi was a good idea, right? Like I always joke and say like, they could have get paid me $10 million and saved the rest of the money. And I could have sat down in one minute and been like, nah, yeah. don't do that. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. And so when people are new in their careers and, and there is the extra status anxiety and worrying about proving your competence, there's a sense of, oh, the people at the top of these enormous enterprises must know more. But the emperor's new clothes is a very instructive tale, right? Because it's really comfortable for people to say, oh, yeah, we're going to take a, a billion dollars. Yeah, Quibi was just, that's amazing. That's a, a yeah. And just set fire to money. And yeah. I think, you know, could, maybe you could not set fire to money. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was literally the Joker in, in The Dark Knight just lights it on fire and skis down the mountain yeah. of money. It was like, 
whatever. Yeah. That was Quibi. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And it can be sometimes demoralizing to look at that and say, there are people who just really don't care because they'll be fine. And it is, and it is a kind of gambling. And then to other people, it really matters. Like it matters that so many talented, hardworking individuals, I'm sure worked on that at the behest of their corporate overlords. What if we did something reality-based and all of that time and talent and energy was put towards something, you know, it's a, it, there's an opportunity cost. And I think bad design is also design that takes up resources that could have been used for doing something worthwhile. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Imagination capture is what yeah. I've been thinking about a lot, right? It's mm-hmm. a, it's, it's an awful thing to, to lose the ability, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the process, right? You, you talk about research through the lens of this process, right? Defining the problem, selecting the approach, plan and prepare, collect the data, analyze the data, report the results, right? Mm-hmm. So I jotted all this down. And, you know, we're not going to have time to go through all of mm-hmm. this, right? But I felt that defining the problem, it's almost in the same vein of something that sounds very simple, mm-hmm. like ask better questions, mm-hmm. right? But yet, I found that defining the problem is one of the biggest challenges that organizations have. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to like kind of, you started there for a reason, Mm -hmm. but I think it's even more impactful than we can really emphasize in in this conversation. So I want to give you a a chance to kind of start there with defining the problem. Why is it so difficult to do that? Mm The reason it's difficult to to really define the problem is like with everything we've been talking about, there's this kind of false consciousness because the problem that really exists that needs to be solved and the most profitable thing to do or the thing the organization is prepared to do are often in different universes. And so I would love it if more people, more businesses just came in and said, yeah, we're just here to make as much money as possible until the government figures out how to regulate us. I think it really is harmful to to all the people like designers who are like, oh, I buy into the mission. And this is why as an aside... I never like it when designers refer to working for brands, which is because then you're working for the myth. It's like you work for the business and you work for all parts of the business. Like you're part of the business. You don't get to like pretend. And so defining the problem is really hard because to do it genuinely, you need to look at the goal of your organization and say, is it actually in our organization's interest? Like if we're a for-profit business or if we're publicly traded and we have shareholders, like a lot of times the the real problem and the way you define the problem are going to be different because you have to define a problem in a way that it's profitable to solve. And if you were really honest about it, you might say, well, this isn't a problem that business should solve. Or if we solve this problem right, then the problem goes away and we have no more business. Like if we look at a lot of healthcare and pharmaceutical companies, curing is not profitable. Treating is profitable. And that is a way that for-profit like research and, and pharmaceuticals are at odds with what's good for the person. Everybody, if you've got a condition and you would like to be completely cured, right? And you would like to be cured cheaply and for good, like 
there's not necessarily money like there. So, so that even goes into like what drugs pharmaceutical companies market or what lines of research they go after the profitable ones. Like there are plenty of diseases that it would be great to cure, but it, or to treat, but it's just not profitable, even though they're widespread. And you know, that opened up a whole wide range of ideas about how this is all set up in the first place, right? That if we're contextually in a culture or an environment that is valuing certain things over others, you know, are we trapped by these definitions in the first place, right? So, you know, if we're in a for-profit model like you just described, then everything that we are defining has to be in service to profit, right, in some mm-hmm. way. And it's only once we start to get out of that, can we open up other apertures, other possibilities, mm-hmm. you know, is that the problem that we need to define in the first place? Do we need to start at maybe a more initial big bang problem mm-hmm. in, in the way we've set this up and then work at all the other smaller problems? And that just came out of nowhere. So I did yeah. not have that written down, but just sort of <laughs> sparked the, the mm-hmm. thought. And, and then I have one other question. Mm-hmm. I'm going to get us out into the final two segments of the show. So take, take that heavy one first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, It's funny because uh, just yesterday I was watching a couple of my colleagues in conversation on design leadership webinar, and they were essentially talking about dismantling capitalism. And the moderator said, well, are there more tactical things that we could consider? It's really tough because once you do start asking these questions very quickly, you see like, oh, there's a whole system. And then you can kind of, it's easy to shut down. And so I think Uh, Just like we might be transportation advocates who occasionally take Uber because we have to get to an appointment on time and it's the only way and the bus isn't working today. We have to kind of do both at once and say, okay, I'm going to for myself, you know, define my own problem statement to say, okay, here's what I want to work on. And that's where it starts. So if each individual were really clear and honest with themselves, like, okay, right now, I just need to make money to pay off my student loans. Or right now it's, I don't care how much money I make. I have to do this sort of advocacy, but be super honest and then say, okay, like know where your boundaries are. Don't support unethical businesses. And especially if you're a professional, you can always get another job. Like I hear people who say, oh, I have to work at this particular large unethical technology company. And it's like, no, you know what? If you be also be honest about the choices you do have, because you might, probably have more power and more choices than you as an individual think you have, right? Because it's convenient to say, my hands are tied. I have to take this giant salary. And it's like, no, you know what? You could you could work for an, a more ethical organization that's less glamorous and less lucrative, but you'd be fine. And so given that, you think, okay, you work on the tactical problem, you work on the, how can I push the organization I'm in by asking questions? How can I push them to live up to the ideals I espouse within the system we're in? Because you as an individual, you're not going to dismantle capitalism. You know, you're occasionally going to order groceries. You're going to order something from Amazon. Sometimes you can't just be consumed by guilt, but at the same time, you can say, well, what actions can I take collectively? And that's where the collective action to push society forward is. How can I, as a member of whatever industry you're a member of, how can I 
push for more representative government? How can I push for regulation? Because it's okay. Like making money is okay. The reason people come together at all across their little communities is to trade profitably. That's why we have cities, you know, all this labor markets, all this stuff. And so what we're missing, I think what we're really missing right now with financialized capitalism, especially, is we're missing the check. Like, you can't expect we've put all this burden on businesses to regulate themselves. And it's up to the business to ensure that everything they do is ethical. That's unrealistic. Business is going to business. And it's up to society and to government to act as a check on that. It's like everything in conversation. Because when we look, speaking of nostalgia, we go back to the middle of the 20th century, the place that a lot of people are seem to be the most nostalgic for, even though, you know, not great. Uh, but what was better is you look at the ratios of the average worker to CEO pay, right? It was really different. You look at the affordability of housing, right? Those are things we should aspire to that are realistic that we could get to if we deal with sort of the unchecked financial capitalism. Because it's fine if businesses are profit seeking that actually there are benefits behind that. But you also need the like, oh, you can't do that. You can't do child labor. You can't poison the water. You can't poison the air. Uh, Absolutely. You you need a weekend, you know? Yeah. All all the things that we've gained through strong labor movements, mm-hmm. right? Yep. <laughs> and through through protest and, and solidarity. Yeah. And it's it's interesting when you were talking about the choices that that people can can make. And if you're honest about those choices, I, I flashed immediately to this this very old movie is the first feature from Robert Townsend and you know it has this movie called Hollywood Shuffle and he's mm-hmm. he's trying to navigate the the world of Hollywood as a as a young black aspiring actor. And and landing in this place where he he feels subjected to all of these roles. So the movies and all these vignettes, and at one point he's like has to play a slave, then he has to play like a pimp, and just all these mm-hmm. different things. And his grandmother always tells him, you know, there's always work at the post office, right? <laughs> like, you know, you don't mm-hmm. have to like sell your soul in mm-hmm. order to do certain things because there's always work at the post office, despite the conservative project to dismantle the post office. Mm-hmm. But this movie came out in the eighties before yeah. they were really full on bent on doing that. But it's an interesting aside that we do have choices, right? <laughs> we definitely have choices and Hollywood Shuffle is a great movie. Mm-hmm. So even though we haven't gotten to the drop, I'm going to add it <laughs> into things. And so I, I want to get us out on this one last question before we get to the final two segments of the show is, you know, in the book, you emphasize this idea of curiosity and teamwork and collaboration. And, you know, we've talked about being skeptical and knowledge and all these different things. And the thought that came to my mind is that at what point does your willingness to go broad and to ask questions and to continue to inquiry become less useful? You know, like at one point does one or team have to rein in the inquiry and and when do you know that? Is that a little bit of art or a little bit of, of science? And then we'll get to the final two segments of the show. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a great question. And again, going back to what we were talking about with impatience, I, I think a, a lot of people, even if they, they say, yeah, I agree, we need to do research, but when can we stop and when can we move on? And I'd say you never stop, right? Because if we're, if the work we're doing now is 
iterative and continuous. If you're doing what a lot of organizations call continuous delivery, you need to be doing continuous learning alongside that. And again, this is the thing that all of us in our daily lives, we totally understand. If somebody said, okay, starting tomorrow, you can never use Google again. What? Like, how do I live my life? We're always asking questions in support of our daily life functions. It's rare. Like sometimes we do have a big question like, oh boy, I'm, a, I'm facing a large decision. I'm about to uh, buy a house and I have small children and I'm, I need to figure out where to raise my small children and I'm buying a house. Then your life kind of like you hit the brakes or if you're dealing with a big health concern and, and, and you're understanding like you, you hit the brakes, but those are big choices. But if you're just like living your life, you are always doing research and you're always thinking about your questions and like, what do I really need to know? And this is just a part of how we live in our internet enabled way. It's like Google is everybody's homepage. You usually start with a question, you know, you approach with a question and it's the same. If you're going along in business and you have a big question with a lot of, or a big choice, a big decision you need to make, a new product, a new direction for the company, a new marketing strategy, then you're like, whoa, before we take any action, we're going to take a minute and make sure that we're on a firm footing to go forward. But if you're just like working, 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 and you know what you need to know about, if you are really clear, these are our customers. You're like, oh, how? what's going on in our customers' lives? You are always just asking, 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 asking to stay current and not like looking back to like, everybody has this fantasy of a research repository where you can just like look at what you learned two years ago and it's still good. It's much better to be really fast about asking and answering questions because you wouldn't want to say, oh, I've got my all my Google searches from two years ago, right? When you take any of these things and just put it in how you live your life, they sound absurd, but it's how businesses work because of <laughs> all these reasons we talked about. And so if you get really fast at, oh, we, before we develop this feature or change this copy, with like, is this going to work? Oh, what do we need to know? And you figure out, what are we trying to solve? What's the question? How do we answer that question as quickly as possible? Oh, let's like, for, let's put this theoretical copy in front of a few people who represent, we'll do it in the next couple of days. Okay, we have confidence we can move forward. When the asking and answering questions, when the inquiry is built into your work like that, it doesn't feel like you're putting on the brakes and oh, now it's a research project and we have to make a report and it's going to stop everything. If you're just like, oh, we are constantly getting better informed about the decisions we're making every day in the course of our work and being really fast and figure out how to share the knowledge with everybody else participating in a decision, then it's no big thing. But that is a radical change for a lot of organizations who are not collaborative, where it's not a safe place to reveal you don't have the answer. So everybody's pretending like they all, you know, agree that they know something you don't. So that does require like a radical transformation in how business works, but not in anything other than the way people communicate with each other. Like it would be invisible in terms of artifacts. Like you use the same tools, the same communication methods. You can just use all of those, but you're, you're using them to add to your ongoing work in a really lightweight way. Absolutely. Radical transformation is, is, is what we are seeking in these, mm -hmm. in these organizations because they are bonkers. Yeah, um, for real. So let's get to, to off the dome and it's just mm -hmm. some rapid fire questions and I have three of them. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, the first question is going to, I didn't see your background before this, but I can see that it's kind of space related. Mm-hmm. And this first off the dome question is space related. Mm-hmm. So this is a sort of random, but um, if you had the choice to go to space, but you could never return to earth, would you go? Oh, heck no. <laughs> space is terrible. Like, yeah. Space is really terrible. Like we have amazing telescopes. I love looking at pictures of space. I love science fiction. No, space is full of like radiation and all sorts of terrible things. I love, oh God, what's the, the Neil Stevenson book? Seven Eves. Okay. About the moon exploding. I totally recommend that book. Uh, oh, that's like a premature drop probably. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so, so that's kind of semi-realistic or the Martian where, you know, it's about like people, what it's actually like to be in space. It's terrible. Go to yeah, the ocean. Space, the ocean yeah, is like space. space. Is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I, there's so much great stuff here on earth. Yeah. No, I'm staying yeah, here. I, w- I 100% agree. Space is absolutely, utterly terrifying. Um, <laughs> what talent do you possess that you would most want to work on? Oh, that I that I already, a talent I have? Yeah, that I talent want? you already have, but you want to take it to like the next level. What would that be? Oh, that's a, that's a, that's a good one. Oh, because I don't, I don't feel like like I'm a person with a lot of obvious talents per se. I guess um, you know you know you wrote a book, right? I did, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then here's here's one. I would like to expand my writing because I've done a lot of nonfiction and professional writing. I would like to write some fiction. See, there you go. Yeah, See, there, you, there. This is what we do, right? We never really think about all the things that yeah. we really do that are talents, right? Yeah. There you go. I was like, wrote a book. Yeah. <laughs> okay, the final off the dome, you know, like I said, we're still in a pandemic, but we're all pretending that we're not. So, you know, in that vein, do you have a preference for nights in, in the crib or nights out, outside oh. the crib? Which is your preference? I It's, this has been rough. I am a nights out person. I am a, I'm a be out of the apartment, be out, be around people. I love being in crowds. I'm one of those. I hear all these introverts who are like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is so awesome. I'm at home with my tea and my cat and I never have to talk to people and I need my alone time, but I, it's rough. It is rough. Not being able to be like inside, seeing a show, going out, just being not at home. Yeah, I'm a real, I'm I'm a very much go out at night person. And absolutely. And it's tough. It's I, I mean, think it's good we have so much like great streaming media, but yeah, I am personally especially like really feeling it. But I, I stay real safe. I don't take like risks like that. I feel yeah, there's no rave of, happening. Yeah. Oh, but but wow, it's uh it's wearing on me. I I totally understand. I think we're probably aligned yeah. in that respect. So that that's awesome. So now yeah. we're gonna get to the drop, and mm-hmm. we've I think we've both given premature yeah. drops, but it's just an opportunity for us to share something, anything at all, with our listeners. So I have one drop prepared, and I'm mm-hmm. gonna go first. It's an artist named Tedra Moses, and she's still recording music, but she released her first album in 2004, 2005. It's called Complex Simplicity, which I, and I did not pick this because of the topic, even though I use these topics and terms a lot. This is solely because of the music. I think it's one of the better R&B releases that we have out there, and it's actually become like kind of this cult hit. 
like folks who really love R&B from that era will kind of go to Teacher Moses and, and kind of refer to that record. So mm-hmm. that's my drop. So you're all you're all teed up. What's your drop for us? All right. So the one that that I kind of prepared is a show called Warrior, which was an original idea of Bruce Lee's. But you know, then he he passed very young, and his daughter has has taken it on and developed the show, and it's on Cinemax, which I don't really think exists, but you can see it on HBO Max, and it's about martial artist who comes to San Francisco in the in the 1800s and gets involved in the Tong Wars and it's really it's fun because it's like a spaghetti western and a martial arts movie there's very there's astonishing martial arts but it's this and it's about San Francisco which I love but the story is told from the perspective of the Chinese people so even though it's uh it's very much fictionalized it's a perspective we don't usually get with like the western genre or even like you know the sort of kung fu genre in America and it's super fun. It is just, it's a super fun watch. That's a good one. I love that show. <laughs> oh, you like that show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then I'll drop in a music one too. So there's a, a Berlin-based electronic music producer, Ellen Alien, who I'd say just, she has a, a label, B-Pitch Records. And I love all her stuff and her collaborations with Apparat. And there just aren't, uh, I think, a lot of big name women producers and and she's great and i love her stuff so there there's i got a music one in there too that is awesome i love when there's more than one drop you know drops are not limited to just (laughs) one thing Mm -hmm. and i'll and i'll throw in the neil stevenson book and i'll also throw in um hollywood shuffle on my side since we i mentioned that in in the Mm -hmm. conversation you know erica this has been a a great conversation I, i really enjoyed chatting with you the the book is like i said it's small in size but it packs the impact. Um, it comes with a wallop and it's, it's been wonderful to, to go through it. And I'm, I'm really glad you're able to join me on the deep dive. Oh, well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. If I can't go out, at least uh, I can sit down virtually uh, with cool people on the other side of the country. So there you go. So thanks so much for being on the show. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.